0: Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. If you're a man on the precipice of marriage or have marriage as a life goal, one worry you likely have is, will my marriage even last? While divorce rates have been decreasing since they reached their peaks in the late 1970s and early 80s, there's still a perception out there that marriage is just a crapshoot, a game of Russian roulette, and that the odds favor you ending up in a family court or at best in a sad and loveless relationship. Well, my guest today on the show argues that that doesn't have to be your fate, so long as you take a proactive approach to marriage. With some thought and intentionality, you can help ensure that you have a happy, loving, fulfilling relationship that lasts until death do you part. His name is Les Parrott, and he's a clinical psychologist specializing in marriage and family. He, along with his wife, Leslie, uh, who's also a marriage therapist, have written a book to help couples prepare themselves for a matrimonial commitment. It's called Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts, Seven Questions to Ask Before and After You Marry. And today on the show, Les and I discuss how a man can know if he's personally ready for marriage, the myths that people have about marriage that uh, set them up for disappointment, the mindsets people have about marriage, particularly millennials and the conversations you should be having with your future spouse to help ensure that you have a happy life together. Uh, while the conversation day is geared towards soon-to-be marrieds and newlyweds, even if you've been married for a couple decades, you're going to find some useful advice and insights in this show. After the show, make sure to check out the show notes at aom.is parrot, um, so that's P-A-R-R-O-T, just like the bird, for links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Dr. Les Parrot, welcome to the show. Thanks.
2: Good to be with you. I appreciate
0: being on. So you're a clinical psychologist that specializes in marriage and relationships, and you work with your wife, Leslie, um, who's also a a marriage and family therapist, about, you know, you work on helping other people have good, strong families and marriages. You've written several books, um, and the book we're going to talk about today is Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts, um, which is all about helping people uh, get on the right path towards a strong and, and happy marriage. Um, but before we, we get into specifics of what engaged couples can do, people who are about to get married to, um, have a good, strong marriage, let's talk about the individual first, because I've gotten questions over the years from guys, um, who they want to get married. They're dating a girl and they're like, I think this is the, 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 the woman I want to ask to be my wife, but they're not sure if they're ready individually to make that commitment to marriage. And they've wondered, like, how do they know they're ready for marriage? So based on your experience and your research, are there things people can look for in themselves to know that they're ready to be married?
2: Yeah, I love that question. It's a great place to start. And and by the way, I should say, related to that introduction, my wife and I do have the exact same name if people are confused. So uh, (laughs) I'm Leslie, and she's Leslie. We're both psychologists, and it does get confusing, but uh, that's why I go by Les. Uh, And it's also why we named our first son John. So uh, (laughs) no more confusion there. But uh, I love your question because it it really does begin with the individual. In fact, um, Wesley and I, um, man, this had to be 18 years ago, sitting around a dining room table in Los Angeles with a fella named Neil Clark Warren. And if his name sounds familiar, it's because he's the guy in the eHarmony commercials. And uh, we were sitting around this dining room table when the idea for eHarmony first was being explored. And uh, we ended up working with that company for 10 years and working on that matching mechanism and all that kind of thing with folks. It was a fantastic team there. But uh, I remember asking Neil that night in the midst of that conversation, Hey, if you could only give one word of advice to a person about to be married, what would it be? And I remember the answer was just like on the tip of his tongue. He didn't have to think for a split second. He said, get yourself healthy before you get yourself married. And that is such an essential thing and such a kind of a a quippy little thing to say, but it has such profound depth. Get yourself healthy before you get yourself married. Why is that? Because your marriage can only be as healthy as you are. In fact, your relationships can only be as healthy as you are, whether it's marriage or anything else. And so we've spent a lot of time in our own research and writing, looking at how do you have relationship readiness? Um, in fact, my wife and I even teach a class at our university here in Seattle, where we live. Um, and it's just Relationships 101. And it's an, it's a class that is offered at six, 6 o'clock in the evening on Mondays, not prime time for undergrads. And yet it's the largest class on our campus. And we start off that that first lecture telling these students, it doesn't matter to me whether you take any notes. That's up to you and how you want to function. Except tonight, I want you to write down one single sentence. And I build this sentence up, and I finally give it to them. And it is so relevant to your question. I want to give it to you and our listeners. And here's the sentence. If you try to build intimacy with another person, before you've done the difficult work of getting whole or healthy on your own, all your relationships become an attempt to complete yourself. In other words, we start to treat others as a shortcut towards our well-being, and that's a lot of pressure to put on somebody else. So that's the big answer. We can drill down on that if you want a little bit, and how do you get healthy? But that's, that's fundamental to any relationship, because your relationship can only be as healthy as you are.
0: Well, so yeah, let's drill down a bit. I mean, how do you get healthy for a relationship or whole?
2: Well, uh, there's several things. You know, one of the hallmarks of psychological well-being and health is self-awareness. You're aware of, you know, uh, issues in your life that you need to be working on. You know, the unhealthy person just goes around uh, without any sense of, of kind of their... Their uh, their jaggedness, how they're how they're rubbing people the wrong way, and how they're interfacing with people in a in a nonproductive fashion, and so forth. So, self awareness is paramount, and that's why I always suggest if somebody wants to get serious about working on this, that they invite a mentor into their life, somebody that's objective, that has their best interest in mind, that will serve as kind of a proverbial mirror in front of them. So that's that's just one practical step. But here's some hallmarks of self of of, um, of psychological health, and one is what I call unswerving authenticity. Now, this has to do with being true to you. Um, I can't tell you as a psychologist how many times I've had somebody come into my counseling office suffering from that proverbial disease to please, you know what I mean? And they're thinking, oh, man, maybe if I accomplish this goal over here, I'll get the respect of this group, or maybe if I get onto this team, Uh, you know, so-and-so will be impressed or maybe if I do this, you know, my parents will give me their blessing or, or I'll win the the heart of this young lady or whatever it might be. And so they end up doing things that aren't authentic and the healthy person knows, Hey, this is the path I'm traveling. Uh, and, uh, nobody can uh, sway me from that because I got to be true to who I am in spite of what anybody else might say, think, or do. So that's foundational. And that, that leads to a second one, and that is um, what I call self-giving love. The most mature, the most healthy among us are people that can transcend their own boundaries and recognize other people's needs and put empathy into practice and see uh, you, you know, needs that are unique to that person. Because most of us, you know, if we're not intentional, we kind of project our own neediness onto other people and then kind of meet those needs uh, thinking we're really being a loving person. When all we're really doing is loving ourselves. Does that make sense? It's yeah. kind of convoluted, but it, 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 happens so frequently. And so those are a few things. Self-awareness is paramount. It, it begins the process. You know, you can only change something. You can only work on something once you're aware of it. And then you got to be true to you. And then you got to give yourself away. The more you give yourself away, the more loving you are to other people, um, in an altruistic sense, uh, you know, the, the higher uh, marks you will get in psychological well-being.
0: Okay. Well, let's talk about, let's say you you mentioned earlier when, before we got on the interview, um, this assessment that you did about uh, young people's attitudes towards marriage. Um, it was a big survey you yeah. did. I mean, and you mentioned there's five attitudes that a lot of young people these days have about marriage. What are those five attitudes that people have about marriage these days?
2: Yeah, I appreciate you asking this because, um, you know, my wife and I wrote this book, Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts. We wrote this years ago um, and really out of our own desire to help our own university students here in Seattle. Had no idea that the book would be used by more than a million couples, that Oprah would have us on, and Barbara Walters and all the rest. It's been a phenomenal ride with that book. But um, a few years ago, our publisher called us, HarperCollins, and said, hey, you know, this book just seems to keep going and going. Let's revise it. Let's update it. And that's kind of publisher speak for let's put a new cover on it. And we said, no, let's do it the right way. And so we began to um, do a lot of research around what did it take for lifelong love? And uh, it was out of that that we devised this uh, assessment that we can come back to called the Symbus assessment. But in the context of of building that, um, we did this massive study through the University of Chicago looking at single adults between the ages of 18 and 35 and uh, trying to understand what is their attitude toward marriage, what we call their marriage mindset. So this isn't about any particular relationship. It's just about what do they, how do they feel about marriage in general, just the enterprise of marriage. And what we discovered is they fall into one of five categories and they're pretty predictable, and it's it's actually quite fascinating. So let me list these, these five off and give you a little, little sense for each one of them. The first is what, and I'll start with R, the first is the resolute mindset. Now, these are people, anybody that's listening to us right now that is thinking, you know, uh, marriage is for life for me. Uh, like divorce is not even in my vocabulary. Uh, I can't imagine not being married because it's always... Uh, been a part of my life plan. That's the resolute mindset. These people are gung-ho on marriage, okay? The next category is what we call uh, after resolute is rational. And the rational mindset, and feel free to interrupt me along the way on any of these, but the rational mindset is the person that, yeah, I believe in marriage, but I know it's gonna be really hard work. In fact, I've probably grown up in a home where I saw how not to be married, and I don't want to go through that. But I still believe in marriage. So these people will tend to get married later. There's more men in this category than women, by the way, uh, the, the rational approach. The third category, after resolute and rational, is romantic. And these people, and this tends to be populated more by women than men, just the opposite of rational. And the rash, the, the romantic approach has an attitude of, Kind of wanting to write this incredible love story because nobody's ever experienced this kind of love with you know in the, on the planet before, and they love words like soulmate and finding the one, and so forth. And so if if it doesn't work out for them, they tend to think, well, I, it wasn't the one. I got duped somehow, and so they they tend to have a higher divorce rate than others. After that category, there's two more, and that's restless. This is an interesting category because you ask these folks, hey, you know, you plan on getting married someday? Mm, yeah, maybe, you know, uh, but uh, it's really not on my list right now because I'm having too much fun. These are people that love to the party. These are people that love just, uh, they're just having a blast. They're just uh, thinking like marriage is the last thing on their list of considerations. So the only way you find these people in uh, a counselor's office, you know, doing some pre-marriage work, is when there's some kind of crisis. Maybe there's been an unexpected pregnancy, or there's financial pressure, or there's something else going on. And then the last category, after uh, resolute, rational, romantic, restless, the last category is reluctant. And these are people that don't believe in marriage at all. It's just a piece of paper. Why would I I ever get married? Um, And so they're very cynical, just about the whole enterprise. So every... Every young adult between the ages of 18 and 35 will fall into one of those five categories. And that's helpful information, especially if you're preparing for lifelong love uh, with another person, because you want to know what their mindset is as well. And the combination of those two mindsets can, can tell you a lot about the road ahead for the two of you. Does that make sense?
0: That makes perfect sense. And I'm curious, um, is there one mindset in particular that has you know a lion's share of the people in that mindset, between the, in that demographic?
2: Yeah, great question. So on average, there's about 20% in each of these categories. Reluctant is the, the lowest and, uh, excuse me, reluctant is the lowest and then uh, resolute is the highest. So the two anchors on the end of the continuum. Uh, but when you break it down by uh, some other demographic information, you know, gender is a big one. That's when you see more women as romantics and more men as rational. So, but uh, yeah, it's a pretty even distribution.
0: Okay. So um, I think, you know, one thing that might put people in that rational or reluctant phase is that, you know, they've probably seen the statistics about marriage and divorce. Um, but I think there's been studies, I mean, I guess the number that's been floating around is like 50%, but there's studies that have so show that it's not as bad. It's actually decreased since like the 1970s when it was at, a, at its peak. But um, still, it's, it can be sobering for people, and uh, people think marriage is just a crapshoot. Um, your job as a, a, pre- a marital counselor, doing this premarital counseling, is to help make it less of a crapshoot. Um, what does the research say on the effectiveness of premarital counseling on reducing the chances of divorce?
2: Yeah, it's pretty easy to get discouraged because everybody knows someone's divorced, right? I mean, you, you just can't find anyone that doesn't know someone that's divorced. So regardless of what the stats are, we've all witnessed pretty much up close and personal the devastation of a a breakup uh, in marriage. So um, does it make any difference? First of all, let me say that people still believe in marriage. 86% of young adults uh, say they want to get married, and 82% of that 86% say they want it to be for life. In other words, nobody... Only a very small handful of people are saying, yeah, I'm going to get married, but this is kind of the starter marriage and I'll I'll find another marriage later on. Um, Most people say, I want it to be for life. Um, And so if they avail themselves of some kind of premarital education or counseling that does more than just focus on the ceremony, we know for a fact that they lower their chances of divorce by 31%. We also know that they raise their level of fulfillment and happiness and uh, contentment in that relationship by at least a third. And so uh, it's it, there's, no, there's no doubt that premarital education is helpful. And in fact, you know, I have two teenage boys. If they want to get married and said, I don't need any kind of premarriage help, I'd just go, are you kidding me? Look at the facts here. <laughs> you want to do this for yourself, trust me. So I can't imagine anybody not wanting to do that. And by the way, the statistics get even higher uh, for success when people will go through some kind of personalized experience, like taking an assessment, like the Simbus assessment that I mentioned a little bit ago.
0: Okay, so uh, let's talk about like what are we aiming for here? If you're you're in premarital counseling or you're doing some education, doing some reading, um, and you're trying to figure out okay, what can I do to have a, a strong marriage from the get go that will last a lifetime? Um, What are we aiming for? What does the research say on what a happy marriage looks like? I mean, what are the traits of happily married couples?
2: Yeah. So first of all, um, the more alike you are, especially when it comes to your values, the easier and happier life is, you know, Um, birds of a feather flock together. We, We sometimes hear people say opposites attract. And there is some truth to that. There's some excitement about being around somebody that's different than you. And, uh, but, uh, as the saying sometimes also goes, opposites attract and then they attack because it starts to get under our skin. Like, why can't you view the world the same way I do, especially when it comes to my values? So I'm not talking about, you know, surface things. You know, I like to ride a Harley and she likes to garden on a Saturday. Those are two very different things. Sure. That can impact the relationship, but not as much as what you might believe about having children or some other values that you hold really you know, so um, so when it comes to predicting happiness in a marriage, you want to you really want to find somebody that can be as similar to you as possible on the things that matter most. Um, in addition, uh, we know there's other marks. You know, we talked about well-being and, and psychological health. That's a huge predictor of success and happiness in a marriage. But there's also uh, to put a finer point on that. There's expectations that we bring, you know, that proverbial baggage that we bring into a relationship. And all of us do this. It doesn't matter whether you're the epitome of well-being and health. Um, And by the way, just going back to that for a second, nobody ever arrives, right? We can't ever check that off our list. Hey, I'm totally psychologically healthy now. Uh, We're always in process. We're all working on that. Um, But when you begin to look at expectations, you know, those are so... They're shaped so intensely by the homes that we grew up in. And so you really want to make sure that um, what you have in mind, your picture in your mind's eye of what married life is supposed to be like is similar to what this other person is expecting. Uh, because if not, we get married and we go, hey, I thought you loved me. A loving husband doesn't do that. A loving wife doesn't do that. Why are you doing that? Um, so it's those kinds of things. Um, and then on a real practical level, another marker is just um, uh, financial security. Uh, we just know uh, that uh, for happy couples, not that money can make you happy, but that when you're on the same page financially, you know, and, and inevitably one of you will feel like more of a spender and one of you more of a saver, um, and that can sometimes feel like opposites, but that's a matter of degree. But just making sure you're you, you've got some solid footing and you're headed in the right dec- direction for financial management. Um, uh, that, that's also a huge predictor. Um, as is age, by the way, a person that gets married at, at the age of 21 versus 25, their chances of divorce, double. Think about that. That's based on nothing more than just how old they are when they get married. And so ha- when you look at happiness in marriage, you know that uh, uh, there's lots of things that go into it, But here's the the crux of the matter. Marriage was never, ever designed to make a person happy. You make your marriage happy. Let me say that again because this is so key. Marriage isn't designed to make you happy. You make your marriage happy, which basically means it comes down to you and your attitude and that of your partner as well.
0: I love that. Um, so let's go back to this these expectations. I thought this was interesting. You have a section in your book about uh, unspoken rules and unconscious roles uh, that yeah. people bring into a relationship. Because I remember when I got married, um, this came up every now and then. It was like weird moments. It was just like stuff like, well, no, this is how you're supposed to do X thing in a relationship or This is the tradition. This is like what this this, we do this at Christmas. We don't do it that way. Um, It's little tiny things that pop up, but you don't think about before you get married. Um, So, how do you bring up these unspoken and unconscious unspoken um, rules and unconscious roles um, to light before you get married, so you're all on the same page?
2: Yeah. Leslie and I have often joked about how cool it would be if before a couple got married, you could say, hey, bring out your invisible rule books. Let's compare notes because everybody gets married with a set of rules about how life should work. And we don't even know that we have these rules until we get married and our spouse begins to break our rules. And they can be about silly things. Uh, You know, uh, hey, when do you open your presents at the holidays? Or, or, you know, you do that Christmas Eve or Christmas night, uh, uh, I mean Christmas morning, you know, just silly things like that, as well as much more significant things, you know, um, on that might relate to spiritual beliefs or what have you. So we have these these unspoken rules, and one of the, the tasks, I think, for a couple that's, that's thinking about, you know, enjoying lifelong love together is to do their best to uncover these rules. So we sometimes call them your personal Ten Commandments. And um, uh, if you just take some time to think about what was important in your home, I I sometimes liken it to, um, you know, if you could go to your childhood home and maybe up in that figurative attic at least, you'd find this big dusty trunk that would have your name engraved on the side of it, and underneath it it would say Relationship Curriculum. And you would think through, you know, you'd pull out file folders of all the, in quotes, you know, I'm doing air quotes here, of all the the courses you took as a kid growing up, you know, feelings we don't talk about in this family, um, you know, stuff like that, you know, uh, maybe you took a class in advanced blame shifting and how to do it, you know, I mean, we, we learned all kinds of things from our family of origin. And so... Uh, when you begin to look at these unspoken rules that you're bringing into the relationship, and your partner does the same thing, let me tell you, you are solving so many problems in advance and eliminating so many headaches down the road. And then you couple that with unconscious uh, role expectations. Uh, those are they're closely connected, but they're distinct. You know, the rules are just about how life should be lived. Unconscious role expectations have to do with what a loving husband should do and what a loving wife should do and what they should say and how they should feel. And so we want to uncover that for them as well, because that was shaped by uh, the, the father that you grew up with, the mom that you grew up with, or it's even shaped by the media things that you witness and said, that's the kind of person I want. Uh, you know, if a, if, a, if a wife is really loving, these are the kinds of things that she would say and think and do. And so the more you can kind of bring that to the surface and then make it conscious, uh, the easier life becomes and the happier, uh, your relationship will
0: be. Fantastic. Yeah. I guess one of an example of that unconscious role would be, you know, a man thinking, well, the way I show my love is just like working hard and providing for my family. And there might be a woman who came from a family where her husband, where her dad was very affectionate and spent a lot of time with their family. And that's what she's expecting, but he's got the complete opposite expectation.
2: Right. I'll give you one other quick illustration just that seems so simple, but it was so impactful on this couple that we were working with a while back. And in the home, they had all these lovely little gifts for wedding presents, you know, and they were going to decorate their apartment with, you know, some stuff to put on the wall and whatever. And it just kept getting put off because in her home growing up, it was always dad who would get out a hammer and nail and a level and put that thing up on the wall. Mom had nothing to do with that. Okay? In his home growing up, Dad never thought about doing it. That was the woman's job. She's the decorator. She's going to put the stuff on the walls. And so here they were. They were married for about six, seven, eight months. And they're both waiting for the other person to to do what? To, to be a loving spouse. Right? Because that's what a loving husband does. That's what a loving wife does. And so I remember when they came back to see us for, for what we call a marriage tune-up, a few months into marriage, And uh, they were just both distraught over this. And we were like, are you serious? This is what's, you know, (laughs) really weighing you guys down. But to them, it was as serious as a heart attack because, and and that's the power of these unconscious role expectations. We build this into our psyche that this, if this person loved me, this is what they would do. And it could be something as simple as just hanging a picture on the wall.
0: Right. So have those conversations before you, you get married. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. criteria that I was looking for turns bright red. It's a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall. So if you want to try fast growing trees right now, they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code manliness at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using code manliness at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com code manliness offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Um, Let's talk in the book you talk about there's three factors needed for long-lasting love in a marriage. What are those three factors, and what sorts of conversations should people be having before marriage to ensure that you're on the same page when it comes to these factors?
2: Yeah, let me preface my comments and my response to, uh, to this, and I'll give you the, the three ingredients of, of romantic love that we know from studies at, at Yale University um, by saying that when we devise the Simbus the assessment, this is a personalized tool it takes about 30 minutes to answer these questions. There's 300 items and all kinds of different There's drag and drop questions, true and false and and sliders and and radio buttons, all that kind of stuff. You answer this online and you get this 15 page report on your relationship. Your your partner does the same thing. And one of the pages uh, out of the 15 is dedicated to this very thing that I'm going to tell you about. And that is, is love, love and sexuality. And um, years ago, at, uh, and by the way, if somebody's interested in that, they can go to SymbusAssessment.com. S-Y-M-B-I-S. It stands for Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts. But years ago at Yale University, there was a professor who did this incredible study um, on romantic love uh, when nobody else really was doing that. You know, it was too mushy. It wasn't scholarly enough to study romantic love. His name was Robert Sternberg, by the way. And uh, he did this massive study, uh the first of its kind, to basically answer the question, what are the ingredients of romantic love? And he came up with this thing called the triangular theory of love, which sounds like an incredible sleeper, right? I mean, like, did we just lose half of our listeners when I said that, right? Triangular theory of love. It sounds so, you know, academic. But I got to tell you, it's super practical. And um, he said that if you just think of love as a triangle and you can kind of, Visualize three words, one on each side of the triangle, or uh, you know, and, and, and were to write them on, on the outside of the triangle. The first one is passion, and that's really the biological side of love. Passion is that part of love that, kind of, just flows with the hormones. There's nothing particularly noble about it. It what you know, that's what gets two people together in the first place. There's kind of this chemistry that takes place, and you go, "Wow, I got to get to know that person, right?" um, that's, that's passion, biological. On the other side of the triangle, you could write the word intimacy, and this is the emotional side of love. While passion is biological, intimacy is emotional. And this is about all the kind of connectedness. Um, we have things in common that we just go, oh, wow, really? You too? And there's that sense of just Intimacy that you get me and I get you like nobody else on the planet. Like, wow, you like see through me. You you have some deep understanding of who I am. And it's great to be known, right? And it's great to know another person that brings us together. That's intimacy. Um, we're, We're reading off the same sheet of music here. And then on the base of the triangle, you can write the word commitment. And commitment is the willful. Side of love. So if passion is biological and intimacy is emotional, commitment is willful. This is that part of love that truly is a decision. This is that part of love that says, in spite of all the things in my life I can't seem to pin down, I'm going to make one thing rock solid, and that's my relationship with you. Now, does that come from your hormones? Of course not. Does it come from your emotions? No. It comes from your will. Love is a decision, as some like to say. Um, So those are the three ingredients of romantic love, Uh, but the research didn't stop there just on identifying the ingredients, because here's what's important about this. The bottom line of all the research was to show that these ingredients are incredibly fluid. They're not static. Love is not a static thing you fall into and you fall out of. Love changes. There's an ebb and flow to it. Uh, There's seasons to it. And so the love that you have today is not the kind of love you're going to have five years from now or five months from now or even five days from now because love changes There's a lot of fluidity to it. And so that's why we always, when we're doing premarital work with couples, we often work on how do you cultivate those ingredients of passion, intimacy, and commitment. Because if you're waking up every morning after you get married and expecting all three of those ingredients to be at a 10 out of 10, uh, you're going to be sorely disappointed because love doesn't work that way. It takes a lot of attention on all all three of those fronts.
0: Right. And I imagine when people first get married, uh, passion and intimacy probably are like stronger. I mean, there's commitment there, but you know it doesn't require yeah. so much will because they just they have all this emotional uh, and biological drive to be together. And then that's going to change as their relationship uh, matures.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. And when you begin to chart out love over the lifespan, you will see what researchers call this big inverted bell curve. And so you have this incredible satisfaction at the beginning. You know, you ask a couple that's just got married, hey, how's your love life? It's incredible. You know, it's 10 out of 10. I'm so glad we got married. And then you come back, you know, five years later, uh, not so much 10 out of 10 anymore. And you come back, you know, 18 years later, and it's like, love life, what's that? You know, and they have teenagers and, and uh, junior hires or whatever. And here's the, here's the really encouraging news. You come back to that couple 25 years later. Hey, how's your love life? And what you discover is there's this new kind of depth and maturity to their love life. And the level of satisfaction is on the rise. And in the second half of marriage, a couple of love life and these three ingredients increase significantly. All right? Now, of course, some couples don't make it that far, and they're missing out on the very best part of married life. But in the second half of married life, the level of satisfaction literally begins to go off the scale. Social scientists no longer have instruments to measure how happy these couples are. So it's an incredible... And, and by the way, I don't want our listeners to get discouraged saying, oh, man, so you have to go through this big, huge inverted bell curve and get disappointed. No, the point of that, that's big sociological trends The point of that is to say, if you know the secret, you know, what are the three essential ingredients of love, passion, intimacy, and commitment, if you know this, you can unlock the, the, you know, you have the key to unlock lifelong love at at its fullest, because you're going to work on those three things. And that's enough to keep some couples going. You know, it's, it's we we can sometimes think, oh, there's another shiny object over here, whatever. Just focus on passion, intimacy, and commitment and you do the hard work of cultivating those three things, and you're going to love the life you live together.
0: Right. And I mean, I guess one thing, I mean, I think that's useful to understand for people because, you know, the passion is going to be there for, I mean, I guess they say like the the shelf life or the half life of romantic love is like three years and then it starts sort of petering out. And that's natural, but there's things you can do. So just expect that, right? If you don't feel the fireworks like you felt when you first met your your wife, that's okay. It's natural. But there's things you can do to cultivate more passion uh, yeah. in your marriage.
2: That's absolutely right. In fact, let me give you one practical thing you can do uh, because this research has been incredible. Leslie and I, we've been married for 32 years and we discovered this um, a number of years ago. And it is so true in our relationship and lots of other couples. But when you do, you know, it's one, we, we sometimes talk about date nights after you get married, you know, so much emphasis is put on dating before you get married, but after you get married, it's just important to continue your date, dating life together. And uh, what happens is we kind of get stuck in a rut, and we go to our favorite restaurant because, oh, I love the lasagna there, and then let's go catch the latest movie. until so we do that, and then we come home. And so it's kind of movie, uh, a dinner and a movie, and, and kind of that's it. And nothing wrong with that. That's great. But here's what the, the research shows. When a couple, especially a married couple, Will, that's been married for a while, will do a date that is novel. In other words, they're doing some activity that they've never done or they haven't done in a long time together. What happens is they have this chemical brain shower of all these uh, that incites all these emotions that they haven't had since they fell in love and were dating in the early stages of the relationship. And so that experience of doing new and exciting things together. Um, and It doesn't have to be elaborate. It doesn't have to be expensive. I'm not talking about that. In fact, the study had these couples Velcro, their, their wrists and their ankles together, and they had to go through this obstacle course. And they compared what happened at the end of that date versus a couple that went out to a romantic dinner and a movie. Well, who do you think was talking the most after that? Who do you think was most energized after that? You know, and they were, they were, they're going, oh, I can't believe we beat that other couple. And we made it over that one thing. Can you can't believe we went to that tunnel? That was crazy, you know? And it just, it brings about all this new um, kind of dormant chemical of falling in love that hasn't been around for a while. So be innovative in your dating world.
0: All right. I love that. It's great practical advice. Um, so focus on these three aspects of the love triangle, intimacy, passion, commitment. But even if you're focusing on those things, there might be, be what you call saboteurs that will pop up even in a happy marriage. Um, what are these saboteurs and what can you do before marriage to reduce the chances of them popping up?
2: Yeah. And once again, on our SIMBIS assessment, we have a page dedicated to this and, and, uh, I gotta tell you, this is the most neglected area of marital preparation, uh, today. And the research shows it should be in the top three. It's, um, uh, it's really fundamental, and it can be summed up in kind of a single sentence, and that is to adjust to things beyond your control. Um, if you don't get a lock on this early on in your relationship, you're setting yourself up for serious heartache. And uh, in fact, I remember Leslie and I were speaking in San Juan Islands off of the coast of of uh, Seattle here, and and uh, we had to get to another engagement, and so we took this little you know, four feet Cessna, this pilot picked us up on this little island and took us back into Seattle. And as we were landing, I asked the pilot, I said, hey, what's the secret to a good landing? And he said, the secret is to find the right attitude in spite of atmospheric conditions. And I thought he meant to say altitude, but he corrected me. He said, no, attitude. And that was the first I'd ever learned that pilots talk about an airplane having an attitude as it lands. It has to do with the tail and the nose in relationship to the ground and and, uh, when I got off that airplane, I remember I turned to my wife Leslie and I just said, man, I got to write that down. Finding the right attitude in spite of atmospheric conditions. I wish we could give it as a wedding gift to everybody that gets married in the world because it would solve so many problems. Um, the saboteurs that we face, uh, and if you haven't, you know, every, every good marriage eventually bumps into something bad. Uh, it's just inevitable. Put your seatbelt on cause it's coming. All right. Um, And uh, for us, we had a a, a child that had incredible health challenges. Um, For others, it might be something like bankruptcy or infertility or infidelity or just go down the list, right? Every good marriage, eventually, bumps into something bad. How you adjust to that, as well as all the little bumps in the road along the way, will determine whether or not your marriage sinks or swims. And it all comes back around to adjusting to things beyond your control, finding the right attitude in spite of atmospheric conditions. Because saboteurs are things like blame and uh, resentment and self-pity. I remember when we first got married, we were living in Los Angeles, going to graduate school, and I think I threw one of the biggest self-pity parties Los Angeles has ever seen. And self-pity is very contagious. Things just weren't going my way. And as you complain about that in your marriage, your spouse will begin to kind of join the party. And before you know it, you're kind of digging yourself into this big pit that serves no purpose whatsoever. So the saboteurs of, of uh, happy happiness in marriage, the list goes on and on, but the remedy is the most important thing, and that is finding the right attitude in spite of atmospheric conditions.
0: That's fantastic, I love that. Um, so we're The Art of Manliness podcast, most of our listeners are men. Um there's been a lot you know some written you know written about you know men are from Mars, women are from Venus. they have they communicate differently, they have different needs. Is that really true? Do men and women communicate differently? And if so, um what can men do to better communicate with their wives or their future wife?
2: Well, there's definitely a, a gender gap that we all need to be conscious of. Um, but when it comes to you know your question about do men and women communicate differently? in a sense, but more important to me than the gender gap, which I want to come back to in a moment, but more important is the personalities that we bring into this relationship Um, because that will determine more about how we communicate, how we like to be uh, communicated to by our spouse than anything else. And uh, so uh, once again, that's why we, we built this assessment so that you can really dig into your two personalities And what that does, it not only just raises self awareness, one of the hallmarks of of well being and health, but it also opens a door for empathy. So you begin to bridge that gender gap more easily uh, because you're focused not just on, oh, men are this way and women are that way, which there's a lot of truth to that, but it's also because you're going, I want to understand you as a person. And when we do that, we kind of crack the code of each other's talk styles because we're understanding our personalities. In On the Simba's assessment, for example, we have this paragraph. There's a whole page on communication, and we uncover your personal talk style, just how you are hardwired in your personality for communication. And everybody is different, so you want to understand that about yourself and about each other. But when it comes to those bigger issues on bridging the gender gap, uh, two things I'll mention. There's lots of them, in, in, in our book Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts, we mention three things that every husband needs to know about his wife, and vice versa. But let me lift out one, uh, especially for men, and that is that every man needs to understand that his wife um, needs to have um, needs to be cherished, cherished, and. That word cherished is a really feminine word because most men, in fact, some studies have even, you'll think I'm making this up, but some studies have actually shown you ask uh, women to list the top 10 things they want in their spouse. And inevitably, a woman will say, well, I want him to cherish me. You ask men to list the top 100 things they want from their wife, and you'll be hard-pressed to find a guy that says, well, I know one thing, she better cherish me, right? Guys just don't think about that. It's not in our nature. And so that that's one suggestion to cherish a woman. Now, what does that mean? And I always love it. Leslie and I do these events around uh, North America called Fight Night. They're, they're uh, basically just a fun date night for a couple, kind of laugh while you learn. And I will sometimes ask the guy, hey, men, what does it mean to cherish a woman? And you can hear crickets in the room because we just don't know. what uh, cares here, a woman. A lover? Yeah. Well, let's get a little more fine than that, you know. And and so, uh, just a, a silly example, uh, silly to to some men, uh, very serious for a woman. But let's say you you show up at your wife's work when you know she's going to have a, a really challenging meeting or something like that, and you deliver her favorite uh, coffee drink uh, from her favorite uh, you know barista. And you, you write a little note on the lid and you just leave it on her desk. You may not even see her. And you do that. All right. That's cherishing a woman. That's saying, I'm thinking about you. And I'm really, uh, I really care about how your day is going. That's what we mean by cherishing a woman. So the book is filled with all kinds of tips like that on how you can do those things as well as many others to bridge the gender gap. But I'm glad you asked the question because it's a big one.
0: Yeah. And and then, you know, you, this idea of uh, communication, uh, you know, what's something that's going to happen up in marriage every now and, Well, it's going to happen inevitably is arguments. You're going to have disagreements. And I think a lot of people have this idea that a happy marriage is an, a marriage that where they never argue. You never raise your voice at each other. Um, but is fighting really bad for a marriage, or can it actually be good for a marriage? Yeah,
2: I appreciate that question too because as I – just mentioned, you know, we did this event called Fight Night, and it's all about conflict. And the reason we do that, and the reason it's so popular, we'll have several thousand couples each time we go to do one of these things. And the reason is, all of us have conflict. Nobody's immune, right? Uh, The question is, how do you use it to your advantage? And here's what we tell people uh, at those live events that we do. Uh, When you master the skills of a good fight, conflict... Becomes the price we pay for deeper intimacy. In other words, conflict can actually bring the two of you closer together if you know how to manage it successfully. And so, uh, yeah, to answer your question straight on, conflict is not bad for a marriage. Uh, What matters is how you manage that conflict. So the goal is not to steer clear of it, it's just to know how to handle it. And of course, we have bad fights that draw us apart. We have dumb fights that are just a complete waste of time. I had a couple that uh, told me just this last week that they were fighting because uh, when they went to bed, um, uh, you know, the last person in bed didn't turn off the lights and the light switch by the door. And they both just had this pride fight about, uh, you, you get up. I did it last time. You get up. And they just fell asleep with their lights on. You know, woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning, the lights are still as bright as day. Um, you know, just that's just a dumb fight, right? That's pride. And so when you learn to manage those kind of little tiffs as well as the bigger things, like are we going to move to St. Louis for your job uh, when our family is, is here in Portland, Oregon, or whatever it might be, you know, when you can learn to to manage and navigate the tumultuous water, uh, you will learn to bring your spirits together. And uh, rise above. You'll be in the top ten percent of couples that enjoy success because so few couples know how to fight a good fight, as we like to say.
0: Yeah, I, those dumb fights, those those happen. And it, I mean, I've had those with my wife, and I, we've had we whenever they happen is like I'm like, why are we fighting? Like it, one of us will have those moments, like I can't even remember like why were you <laughs> fighting. And then we start. I mean, we kind of right. laugh it off, and that's sort of our way of diffusing the situation because um, usually is yes. we forget what set it off, and it's usually dumb. Um, so that yeah,
2: we had a couple, a little while ago, they were fighting about whether their cat was fat or not. Right. Like, that's a dumb fight. That's a, that's you know? a dumb it's fight. Like, why are we having this
0: fight? Why Are we just, so, then, you know, I think the key is like for us to just like laughing about it and realizing, okay, well, we just, yeah. we're human and we just got wasted five minutes of our lives. Um, so we've been focusing on what to do to prepare for a marriage, but a lot of folks are listening to this. Um, they're in a marriage. It's not so great. it could be better. They're having problems. Do these tips apply to them if they, you know, do these things that they, they can help strengthen and possibly save their marriage?
2: Yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, you know, this assessment that I've been talking about, we designed it for pre-marriage and, and kind of pre-engagement, you know, those couples on the edge of, of, commitment. Um, and what we discovered is, uh, it's applicable to any age or stage um, you know, it doesn't matter whether you've been married for 30 years or, uh, or three, three years, or you've just been dating for three years and you're thinking about getting married. Um, you know, we all deal with these same issues and those issues are, are love and communication and conflict and bridging the gender gap and attitude and expectations and, and all this stuff that we've been, been talking about. And so that's why Uh, we actually uh, now use this Symbus Assessment with any age or stage.
0: Fantastic. Well, Dr. Perry, this has been a great conversation. Where can people learn uh, more about your work? I think you mentioned, uh, is it Symbus.com they can go to?
2: Symbusassessment.com, and that's S-Y-M-B-I-S. That stands for Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts. That's the title of uh, our book. And by the way, there's her workbook that uh, people can go through that together. There's even a DVD if they want, but uh, they can find all of that on our website, our primary website, which is lessandleslie.com, lessandleslie.com. And uh, that's L-E-S and then the word and, A-N-D, and then Leslie, lesli com, And of course, there's a link there to the Simbus assessment that we've been talking about too.
0: Fantastic. Well, Dr. Les Parrott, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure.
2: Hey, my, my honor to do it, and thanks for having
0: me on. My guest today was Les Parrott. He is a clinical psychologist specializing in marriage and family. Uh, he's the co-author of the book, Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts. You can find more information about his work at uh, lesandlesley.com, or like as he said in the podcast, you can take his Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts assessment at symbisassessment.com. Uh, and be sure to check out the book on Amazon.com, Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts. Also, check out the show notes at aom.is parrot. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the show and have gotten something out of it, I'd really appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It really helps us out a lot. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.